This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Good morning, I'm Philip C and this is The Breakfast Grill. In conjunction with World Mental Health Day, I have in the studio with me Deepa George, Managing Consultant at MyHRC Services and Azran Osman Rani, CEO of Naluri, as we have a conversation about how corporate Malaysia are grappling with mental health issues faced by their employees. You know, welcome Deepa and Azran. You know, I just want to share with you, right? Sure. I came across this interesting article mm-hmm. and the headline said, Mental health is no longer a dirty word as awareness grows, but some youths are adopting the labels too loosely. Deepa, do you agree with that? Yeah, well, unfortunately, everything, you know, when you have too much of a good thing, it can be abused. (laughs) So um, while it's great that I think we are normalising more of that discussions at the workplace, there are some younger generations that, you know, take it a bit too far. So every time they feel just a little bit of pressure or maybe stress in terms of work or the bosses give them a little bit too much to do, they like to call that out um, and they say they're overwhelmed and they cannot cope and they need a, you know, sort of mental health timeout. So that is a constant struggle in terms of knowing when it's genuine and not, um, but that's something that we're dealing with. Mm. So I do see that unfortunately happening a little bit. I'm sure right, there's a tension where perhaps, you know, younger generations, younger employees, you know, do want to perhaps overuse the terms, but there is still a fundamental question whether corporates are really investing and looking at this very seriously. And Azran, managing Naluri, you, you talk to many mm. businesses and corporates there. Have you seen that trajectory and improvement where businesses are really taking mental health very seriously? Yeah, definitely. I think initially it was a response during COVID to be able to have a service to uh, that that the employees can access to. I think now the next step is that a lot of these business leaders understand that it is an important part of performance, engagement, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, uh, how does it uh, get embedded into the broader organizational uh, strategy? So it is it is being you know elevated to a kind of a boardroom level of discussion nowadays. Mm. Because really fundamentally, when you make that mm. argument, addressing it is actually good for business. Yeah. That you will see that overturn, the improvement in performance, the reduction in absenteeism, mm. better presentism. I think that's really the intention here. What are still the gaps though still in terms of the maturity of businesses here in grappling with it, you know, deeper? Okay, so um, to, I think, Azran's point, what's good is there have been a lot of organisations that have started to measure it. One is through organisations such as Naluri and also even within their internal engagement surveys. So you may not have seen those questions before about how they, you know, it's it's really along a lot of the common leadership dimensions. So I think now they've started to measure that, right? Um, but some of the areas where we've seen them adopt is, you know, in things like um, even in terms of MC handling, if you talk about how people... Uh, manage medical certificates. So in the past, it was very much a requirement that everyone had to submit an MC before they take the time off. So it could be a sick leave entitlement as per the law. But right now, many companies are adopting this thing where it's casual medical leave, they don't need to provide a reason and so on. So that is something that at least helps people who are a little bit uncomfortable sharing that, you know, they had a migraine because they had a really bad day. But Mm -hmm. it may be very valid that they woke up and they didn't sleep the entire night and they just can't function. But how do they 
they say that, it sounds so silly maybe to a lot yeah. of people. But so there are little, little steps, um, you know, and, and a lot more. But at least there's slowly companies are including it in their engagement surveys to find out the state and then validating it with an external third party that may be unbiased um, and then doing little things about it and, and much more I can share. And just extending on that point about data, mm-hmm. we, we've seen so much conversations about it. I wonder how that translates in terms of the data we're seeing, right? When, as when you run a whole series of data for companies from mm-hmm. large to small, uh, when you see this rise of issues related to mental health, is this a function of the fact that the environment's changing a lot or is there just greater awareness of it? Well, if you were to look at it over decades, there's definitely a structural difference, right? So Malaysia in the 1990s, prevalence rates for mental distress was in the 11% range. Mm. It is now over 30% range. So mm. clearly awareness is not uh, the issue because this was based on whether, you know, proactively going out into populations and assessing them rather than expecting people to put their hands up and say, you know, I'm feeling mentally distressed. So there's definitely a uh, structural issue. Now, we're also seeing that at a generational difference because when we start to quantify prevalence of depression, anxiety and stress, we're now seeing that the 20 to 29-year-olds are experiencing it between you know, 40 to 60% higher than the Gen X's above 40, right? And it's a very stark statistical difference. You know, it extremely. Is not, extremely, right? Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot that, uh, you know, fa- a lot of factors that contribute to why this is a generation that has, uh, is experiencing real uh, distress that we did not go through in our early formative years uh, professionally. Can we pinpoint to sure. the context to this generational gap? Why is there such a big gap in in this statistic? Um, well, if I were to look at it, I mean, I'm Gen X myself. <laughs> and if I think about the leaders that groomed me um, and even our own family pressures, right, or family situations, right, very rarely did you see Gen X sort of say, oh, I can't cope with this work environment. I think I'll be quitting. A lot of time people only do that after they've got a second job in, or next job in line. But today people even sort of decide that, you know, I'll take a break to focus on finding a job. That would be unheard of in that generation. That's right. So that pressure of making sure you have a stable and secure job was there. So I think we sort of put took off everything else and look, as long as I have a decent job, I'm fulfilling my Hopefully some of my interests, not everyone gets to do everything they're interested in all the time, and I'm able to make a meaningful contribution, then that should be good enough. But with the new generation, it's really very much driven by need, you know, uh, purpose and sense of all that. And maybe it's because the Gen X are the parents, right? And they wanted that for themselves. So obviously they inculcate that in their kids. And so they say, you know, make sure you find meaning in your work. Don't let anyone tell you you're not good enough and so on. So Gen X has done that with the kids. And so the kids say, if I'm not good enough, then this place is not good enough for me and so on. So it is a bit of a combination of that, the awareness as well, but I think we just sort of bit the bullet in the past and and, and accepted mm. it. Plus, this generation is inundated with 24-hour accessibility. And then Gen X, who are the leaders, have to cope with the fact that they didn't have it when they were in that generation, and now they also need to be 24 hours accessible to their teams as a senior leader. So 
there's a you know tension. Yeah, yeah two very interesting points here. Mm. Context, right? Context yeah. is everything here. And I think the second interesting point you frame here is that for many of us, the opportunities are limitless. For those in the younger generation, they feel there are no boundaries per mm. se. Whereas perhaps the older generation said, "Look, you had very clear rules. You had very clear frameworks, mm-hmm. and just play along mm. these rules and frameworks." So they just lived and coexisted peacefully within it. When you're kind of grappling with something grey and nebulous, that's where it becomes extremely mm. challenging, isn't it? Yeah. When addressing. By it. the way, another factor that we cannot neglect that may even be a, a larger factor is financial pressure. Mm. Because this is a generation that that's starting to enter the workforce where cost of living, inflationary pressures have far outstripped wage increases. Yep. Right, so they are experiencing financial distress at a much like orders of magnitude more intense than what we did. And when you layer on top things like buy now pay later and the easy accessibility of credit, you can imagine the the kind of dire financial situations that many people young people are going through right now yeah and the pressures right of basically having it all i think yeah. that is also one of the fundamental concerns here mm. i wonder whether when when you speak to all your clients clients and customers whether you see this gap these issues of mental health whether they are unique or more prevalent in specific types of organizations is there a distinction between mncs and smes between a certain industry type are there clear distinctions when you look at mental health issues? Well, we did a, a, a pretty large 2022 uh, employee mental health and well-being assessment, about 70,000 respondents across the five countries. There was definitely an, an industry difference. Uh, and industries, interestingly, like um, admin call centers were highest uh, on the list. Um, and then you get into, um, you know, oil and gas and mining, you know, you know, very um, intense operational roles, uh, manufacturing, and then, you know, lower down, obviously, financial services, telecommunications, less so, even though, you know, when we say less, it, it means, uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent of employees experiencing distress as opposed mm-hmm. to 50 to 60 yeah. percent, but it's still very, very significant. Yeah. And, and Deepa, your experience, right? I, you know, Asrin has a very interesting point that there is that clear distinction between the different industries and perhaps the industries have very unique pressures which then puts and reflects that, right? Besides the industry, I always think the biggest issue is the boss itself, no? Mm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that definitely adds a layer of complexity, hopefully positively, because the industry will be that. And a lot of people move from one job to another within the same industry. That's the reality. If they're trained in a situation. So in order to cope with that, hopefully the leaders are better equipped. So I really feel that this is the time. It's a call to action for the uh, companies to really get their leaders better equipped to have, first of all, normalize conversations around it and then have the necessary interventions. But before that, even identifying the you know potential triggers and so on. So I think industry-wide, um, it's a concern. In, if the leaders can help that and be able to anchor that together with HR's f- uh, facilitation and support, I, I hope that yeah. works. So it's essentially the number one cause of mental distress, right? Between 40 to 48% of kind of uh, presenting, uh, you know, underlying issue that employees, when they reach out for help. So more than uh, financial pressures, more than family or relationship issues, uh, you know, and more than kind of career uh, prospects or uncertainty, it literally is the direct supervisor. 
And that's why many organizations realize it's no longer just about providing access to mental health professionals to help the employees, but you got to create programs to teach leaders and managers how do we run and, and lead our teams differently. We cannot employ the way we were run in the 1990s and 80s yeah. to this generation. It does call for a different leadership approach. And this is where it where this whole generational gap comes to the fore, isn't it? Because exactly. most leaders are those Gen Xs and exactly. you know senior millennials, mm. and those employees tend to be the juniors, right? Yep. So that's accentuated further, isn't it? Yep. So you either frame it as a generational gap or the gap being the employer-employee relationship, but it's the same thing. Very similar, yeah. Yeah, and I, if I may add uh, to that, also personality types is something that really compounds this, I find, um, mm. in the workplace. So some leader, leaders that might be very extroverted, very alpha sort of, uh, you know, sort of personalities. And if they have a team member, team members that are very diverse. So how do you ensure that every voice is heard? So if you have a meeting and you say, guys, I'd like to hear your views, blah, blah, blah. And maybe three people speak, but just because they spoke doesn't mean they have the best ideas. What about the rest? Mm. So leaders must also look to be, be able to extract ideas from them, even if it means to going back down to the good old post-its where everyone writes one idea or one contrarian view to challenge the boss in that setting and then hand it over so that everybody's voice is heard. So that's just a simple thing. And then the poor person who's a bit more introverted, submissive, is just a personality type, nothing to do with their competence, mm. will feel, how do I say this? I'm not sure what's the right words. Am I going to get, I don't have the right language command. So all these things, you have to settle that. You have to make sure that becomes a level playing field. You talk about the process. I, wa I wonder now with this fast-changing environment, with, with this nature of how we work, whether companies are changing the way how they design the organizations as a result mm. of these challenges, right? And Deepa, you especially being a HR consultant, you talk about multiple facets of HR. I wonder whether now you're seeing org structures evolve very rapidly in, in response to these very fast-changing places. Um, I would like to think that it is, but the reality is I think it happens more in multinationals where I guess where the, you know, companies and in Europe and US where they're a little bit more advanced with this, these, there are already practices in place, I think, for mental health and mm -hmm. how it leads to organizational designs. So they are able to make sure there's heterogeneity in the team versus over here in, in local companies, they really, there's still a view that we want more of the same good people that we have. So maybe diversity, um, is not yet as celebrated as they say it is. Maybe we're talking a lot about female empowerment and stuff, but we talk about diversity of the profile of individuals. I wish there was still more happening and then accepting them. So, which is extending the mm. point about scale and size mm. of the business. You know, Deepa's example here illustrates perhaps when you have a certain size and heft, mm. right? You have the maneuverability, the ability to move and create diverse opportunities mm. per se. That's why it's hard, right, for mm. smaller businesses sure. to be able to grapple with these challenges there. Well, in a small organization, take startups, for example, uh, it, it's even more important that, uh, you know, the leaders, however few they are, you know, play a, an effective role. And I'll start by saying, what's the number one way that leaders uh, impede or hurt psychological safety in the workplace? When they say, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with an answer. Because what that happens is that basically, and, and a lot of issues at work is complex. So if I don't have a solution, I keep my mouth shut, right? Now, yeah. I, I get why leaders say that, right? They don't want to mollycoddle or spoon feed their team members. But imagine if you say, hey, thanks for coming up with that problem. How can I help you? How, what are ways have you thought to address it, right? 
And what that goes to show to me is more than just organizational design, probably the number one issue that we need to address, whether in a small company or large organization, is performance management, and specifically conversations that need to happen. The single biggest issue is when we are not having direct conversations. We wait until a year-end conversation or quarterly review. That's way too late. How do you create a culture where it is okay to talk about issues, challenges on a much more regular basis? That's going to be the biggest lever that you can pull in any organizational size. And we're going to have that conversation after the break. On The Breakfast Grill, I have with me Deepa and Azran to discuss in conjunction with World Mental Health Day. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Welcome back. In the studio with me is Deepa George, Managing Consultant at MyHRC Services and Asran Osman Rani, CEO of Naluri, as we have a broad-ranging conversation on mental health in the workplace in conjunction with World Mental Health Day. You know, we early, we ended the earlier segment about the importance of having these conversations, mm. about being able to understand how we kind of distill it or you know, put some filter with performance management. But that's the hard part, isn't it, Deepa? Having conversations on this is extremely difficult. There is a huge stigma on discussing mental health in the workplace. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I just want to carry on from what Azran brought up earlier, which is around performance management. That's some area which I wish there was a magic answer for that um, because we still haven't got that right. There's so many organizations we've gone through, you know, so the rating scales, there's the balance scorecard, there's all the different types of, and it's of course, everyone will say, just show me the money, show me the impact, show me the output. And I think that's another big challenge um, with this whole uh, aspect, which is a lot of people struggle with the input during covid Bosses could not see, or even now with hybrid and work environment, bosses cannot necessarily see the effort, the rigor, and how much um, complexity the employees go through when they're trying to get to the final outcome. So are we saying that we dismiss that entire thing? You can't. So employees need a way to showcase their input in terms of not hiding behind it, but really showing the effort and so on. But the bosses must acknowledge that that was part of it that made or you know make or break the outcome, yes. Because they're going to get marked on the outcome anyway at least appreciate the effort and the process and the input the employees did to get there. It's the Mm. challenge of having the balanced scorecard Mm. where you have the outcomes and the inputs, right? Mm -hmm. But most corporates still very Mm outcome-centric. Absolutely. And and that's why, you know, what what I definitely want want to encourage is, you know, regular check-ins, right? Uh, Weekly, if not at least monthly sit-downs to kind of calibrate where... You know, whether the boss thinks the employee is on track or not. It may just be a five or 10 minute conversation, but it is so much more effective than waiting. We, mm. we, we have a culture of waiting until, you know, the quarterly or annual review, right? By then it's too late and nobody thinks it's, it's fair. Yeah. And this is where I'm a bit worried about where I think there are some employees who feel very insecure with their jobs, but actually have genuinely mental health issues. Mm. But they intentionally bury it, right? Because mm. they just don't want to inform their employers that they have these challenges there because of fear of losing their job. The mm. insecurity mm. is going to increase as we enter this whole mm. challenging economic environment, right? But how do we kind of help you know, have these thoughtful conversations and enable courage on both mm. sides to address the issue. 
Okay, so for this, I do feel though it does take two hands to clap. So the leader has as much of a responsibility as, and then we look to the employee. So what I mean by that is leaders cannot to, to uh, you know, to continue again with that same point, cannot continue to just have conversations around where's your to-do list, show me what you've done, progress report. Every conversation is meetings around tasks orientation. How about a check-in just about how they're doing? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like having an agenda-less conversation and maybe it's out of your work environment. Maybe it's a tetare. Maybe it's a, you know, whatever it is. It's something that has an opportunity for the person to say, hey, last week's been really tough, hasn't it, Deepa? We've been doing three new system changes and blah, blah, blah. How have you been coping? Even allowing them to open up and have that conversation, I'm not sure how many leaders have that versus how are you going with the three systems? Now, Mm -hmm. that's a very different question because it's about how am I progressing? Are the tasks on track versus how are you coping with managing those three different system implementations? You see, so it's a, you need to marry both. Of course, we're working in an organization, but how many leaders actually have a genuine conversation to see how people are doing with it? Can I just flip the script? Sure. I have a sense that this is not only a one-way conversation mm-hmm. where I think a lot of our leaders are actually experiencing mental health yep, issues. Absolutely. And where I think there's even greater awareness, perhaps even within the employee base, that someone's going through the mental health mm. check. How do you how do you equip an employee to have a conversation with their leader mm. about the mental health challenges the leader is having? Well, with the bank that we work with, I think they did a really good job addressing this by saying for one year... We're going to get each month a member of the C-suite or leadership team to have a town hall session and to talk about the stresses and the challenges and pressures that that leader is going through, essentially normalizing it. Mm. And not to say, you know what, I've got things under control and here's how I'm coping. It's just Mm. saying, guys, here are the big, big challenges I'm dealing with. It keeps me up at night. I worry about this, this, this. Right, um, and in other cases, a few of the GLCs having the CEOs themselves in town halls talking about the importance of, uh, you know, recognizing uh, the pressures and for everyone uh, to understand what are the signs and symptoms we need to look out for. Because the key thing we have to shift is to shift the burden from that one person who's feeling distressed to put up their hand and say, I'm distressed, to making it a collective responsibility for all of us to look out for each other, right? And so you've got to be able to, it starts with the leaders showing, I'm also under stress and pressure. I'm human Mm, too, right? And and that made a huge difference. Mm. And and this ability to have, you know, this ability to share that burden and have that joint responsibility probably is very hard now, right, with many corporates still adopting work-from-home policies where there's still this disconnect Mm. between... um, the employee and the employee or, you know, the relationship is a bit more distanced, right? Do you think work from home has made the issue worse or is it regardless of it? Well, I think work from home may have just exaggerated it in terms of or brought it to light for some companies. I really believe if the culture of the company was such that people were scared uh, of the boss, whether it was boss call them to the room versus send a text and how some people wins. I, I have some people who say, oh my goodness, when I see a text come up from certain individual, they panic. I, they panic. Mm. That's a baseline of psychological safety is just gone. So mm. irrespective of whether it's hybrid, whether it's work from home or in the office, I think that would unfortunately still be there. You agree with that assessment? Oh, absolutely. I think the whole issue of around work from home or returning to the office is organizations need to have a very clear 
reason why they approach one versus the other and, and, and share it, right? Like, if you're going to bring people to the office, be deliberate about it. What's the goal? What do we expect to achieve? Have a structure to it. Yeah, rather than saying, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, I want everybody back to the office. Mm. And when someone comes to the office and they spend six hours doing Microsoft Teams calls while sitting in the office desk, <laughs> you, you got them thinking, why am I even here and, and dealing with that 45 one-hour traffic just to sit in my desk and have six hours of calls? It doesn't make sense. So if you're going to bring people to the office, you better be deliberate, create whether it's the meetings or the activities so that people take advantage of building that community and not just say, come to the office, but then you know, do what you could have done at home. I think it's so fascinating when I hear this conversation. It's such a simple solution, mm-hmm. but it's complex in the same way. Because when you talk to many people about joining a company, oh, I'm joining company A, company B, because from a mental health standpoint, they offer psychiatric services. Mm-hmm. They have all these systems for you to address mental health issues. Fundamentally, though, that's just putting a plaster to the problem, right? Absolutely. And, you know, again, talking about this work from home and so on, those are all just covers. A lot of people try to use that as attractive, you know, sort of like sweeteners to get people to join their company, um, you know, versus coming into the office. But as Azran said, it has to go down to the core values of what is the reasons behind it. I use a simple 4C principle, uh, which I've tried to work with my clients on. And the first one is, does the person working from home have the competence to their job from home or are the tools available only in the office? Number two, uh, is communication tools available? or Is it going to be compromised, right? So will the person's credibility or the team's credibility be compromised? Um, the third one really is about convenience. And that is a no, it's, it's a no-go system, right? Which is don't use convenience for you because the boss sort of says, I want to see Deepa now and she's not there. That, that's not a reason to say no work from home. And last one is control. You have sufficient control if you can see the output and the work they do versus saying, I, when I see you in the office, I know I have control over you. So those kind of principles are simple sometimes for the small SMEs, when I work with them, they use that as a framework to decide whether they can or cannot uh, do that. Otherwise, you're right. It's still, it, it goes to the heart of it. Yeah. And I think when we talk about it, we, of course, have this conversation about how businesses and employees have to work collaboratively together and drive it. I wonder how government society mm-hmm. plays a role there. And so many discussions about legislation, right, to incorporate workers' mental health as part of Occupational Safety and Health Act. You know, Asran and Deepa, just want to get both your perspectives right. What else more can the government do to help bridge and improve the working conditions of mental health, for mental health of, of employees in the workplace? You brought up a very interesting parallel between occupational health and mental health. Mm. Um, because occupational health is much more uh, widely understood. Right, you know, you want to reduce accidents and injuries in the workplace. So interestingly, we've we've now developed this psychological safety management system or the pyramid, right? Where in the past, if you if you compare it to occupational health, let's say for every death in the workplace, how many serious injuries, how many accidents, how many near misses, you you track then what activities that could have led to a potential accident. For mm-hmm. example, someone walking at the factory floor while talking on mobile phone, right? Or if you go up, up and down stairs, you're not holding the handrail. That's pretty well established. Mm-hmm. We can now draw a parallel with the same psychological safety pyramid, right? Because we now know, for example, for every death by suicide in the workplace and, and 
quite a few organizations have seen that, right? How many people, let's say nine people had to be medically bought out because of, mm. you know, long-term depression, anxiety, and stress. How many people were clinically diagnosed and, and could not work for more than 30 days? That number is probably 44, right? How many people were diagnosed? 212. How many people reached out to an employee assistance service? 100, and, you know, about, let's say 900 people. And how many people were diagnosed at having early risk of depression, anxiety, and stress. And that number is probably a few thousand. But the more you start to measure it, the more you can see, is this organizational moving to its one where that pyramid is narrowing? I mean, it's getting right. healthier year in and year out, right? And so uh, there are government agencies that have established those standards for occupational health. We should be able to carry on and say, you know what? Let's get organizations to benchmark psychological yep. safety and health in the workplace, so you can then also know which organizations are... So you can trend, yeah, do exactly. the proper trend analysis yeah. there. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there are a lot of organizations out there that win awards for best employers and so on. Um, I would challenge these organizations to use such indica indicators to make them organizational health indicators. That's mm -hmm. one. Um, you know, and other than that as well, I think part of the conversations we were talking about is... Even things like the medical leave, right, medical cert, um, right now for legally to say somebody is abusing it or you want to talk about people take weekends off and so on, I think there needs to be some way to link their personal um, family and community situation to their potential mental health. So, for example, if somebody's going life-changing situation, someone's going through a divorce, they're potentially losing custody of their children, why is it not right? There must be some way to say it's, we understand that she or he may be going through this kind of a mental health uh, situation. But there is no, whereas if somebody had diabetes and then they're having some, you know, kidney issues, there's a direct linkage. You can sort of, you can tell that to your boss and they'll accept it. So even being able to have those kind of linkages where people's personal demographics and family situation can affect mental health and then not forcing them to provide a medical cert for that or psychiatric evaluation and so on, those things will really help. Deepa and Azran, thank you for taking the time to help us unpack this incredibly complex issue of mental health in the workplace. In the studio with me, Deepa George, Managing Consultant at MyHRC Services and Azran Osman Rani, CEO of Naluri. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.